Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. 20 years after welfare reform, it seems everyone is asking the same questions. What was the goal? And did we achieve it? This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. dive into welfare reform and the pearls we wanted to ask everyone again to subscribe to our email list if you haven't already you get uh, sort of first alerts when the episodes are published as as long as as well as excuse me in the show notes for any links to the articles we talk about or podcast we reference so you can go sign up at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com as well as on our website check out t-shirts if you'd like a t-shirt or become a supporter of the show So today in the Pearls, we have a couple of things to hit before moving on to our welfare reform discussion. Sarah, you had some feelings about the reaction to Hillary Clinton releasing her health records. 
Um, I just feel like this justifies all my defensives of her and sort of her um, difficulties with transparency. She was transparent. She took her medical records. She released them like she should. Everything's supposed to be fine. And now all of a sudden the woman has a brain clot and is on the edge of death. And it like went from the fringe to now like it's mainstream and people are talking about it. Dr. Drew is weighing in. I don't care what you think, Dr. Drew. Like, stop. It's so frustrating. And I just feel like she's probably sitting there somewhere going, y'all, that's why I don't do this. This is why I don't do this. I tweeted this when the news was coming out about her records. I always feel so voyeuristic when this happens. I understand why we do it, but I also just feel very wrong about it. Like, totally independent of Hillary Clinton. I feel really weird about the fact that we look at medical records. Well, and, you know... I was listening to Ezra Klein interview Atul Gawande, who I love both of them. And he was talking to Atul Gawande about his piece on the the gap between her. And he was saying, you know, why have we decided that people who sort of are so seemingly transparent and can speak in front of big crowds with such comfortableness when that's authenticity and that's something we connect with when really people who can do that are the exception of the rule. Most quote unquote normal, authentic people would struggle in front of a crowd, would not be uh, charismatic to, th- you know, a thousand people at once. I once heard Chris Rock say, like, stand up comedians are sort of psychopaths. Like, if you walked into your kid and he had a whole room of people laughing, you'd be like, oh my God, he's Damien. Why is he controlling this crowd of people? <laughs> like, like, it's sort of an exceptional skill, but some, for some reason, we've decided the exceptional skill instead of the normal response is what um, lends itself to authenticity. And I just started thinking about her. With relation to, you know, because that's what he was talking about, but in relation to this in general and how, again, we, you know, because she doesn't speak off the cuff and sort of transparently about her mistakes, whether it be the email, um, we've decided that that is some sort of reflection of her character instead of just sort of looking at her results. And I just thought of this too. And I thought, well, here we go again with this medical records. It's the perfect example of she does what she's supposed to and it turns into a mess anyway. This is an area where the West Wing has really impacted what I think. Oh, yeah, because he had MS. Yes, and no one knew it for the longest Mm -hmm. time. And I think that if you have the stamina to undergo a presidential campaign, can we just be done? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, I just feel like there are unbelievably skilled, competent people who suffer all sorts of things. And instead of projecting our own medical baggage onto other humans, and I mean this, like if I don't know what Donald Trump's health condition is either, but he's clearly got a lot of energy. I marvel at the fact that he's 70 years old. So, I mean, let's just, let's just move on. I feel like the, the stamina and the presence of these folks it speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I, mean, I just don't need to dive into like their records. like they're keeping something from us. Right, right. And, and, and like what they are keeping is in any way our business. Yeah. And, and we, listen, you are going to bring all kinds of things to the presidency because you are human. And maybe those things are physical things. Maybe they're things like depression. I just kind of operate from the perspective of the people doing this are being vetted. I, I don't need to know this information about them. And I certainly don't need to talk about it or um, infer anything from it or blow it out of proportion or project in any way on it. Well, and, you know, Atul Gawande's sort of other point, which I think is so important to this discussion, is that in politics and his, his point 
in healthcare too, which is we, you know, his ultimate point was at this point in history, instead of suffering from ignorance, we're suffering from ineptitude. We have the knowledge to fix a lot of problems, particularly within healthcare, but even sort of in politics too. But we just can't, we held people to this perfection model in which they should handle this incredible universe of knowledge we're currently sitting on and never make a mistake. And he's like, we shouldn't hold people to a perfectionist standard in which they never mistake. We should hold a people from whether they learn from the mistake and improve. And that's, we don't do that in politics at all. We've talked about this on the show before. We, it's a, it's a perfection standard. It's a gotcha standard. It's a, instead of we're looking at the total picture and deciding how you handle mistakes. We want no mistakes at all. Well, speaking of mistakes, <laughs> the Trump campaign has reorganized itself yet again. And I don't know if mistake is a fair way to talk about this. I just think it's oh, really, I do. it's really strange. It sends all kinds of conflicting messages. So if you've been living under a rock because this has gotten wall-to-wall coverage, despite lots of other important things going on in the world, Donald Trump has made Kellyanne Conway a very respected Republican pollster, his campaign manager. And Stephen Bannon, who was the editor of Breitbart, his campaign's CEO. I mean, what is a campaign CEO? I don't know. Uh, especially when you claim to be the CEO of all time, and that's your major um, platform for running for office, right? Like, Donald Trump as CEO is sort of the whole deal here. Well, so I and what, it was... I've, what I've heard is, like, what we're really learning here is he is in charge. I thought I read that in an article and they're like, what this shows more than anything is that he is the CEO. Right. <laughs> Truthfully. And he should be. I mean, you should be the CEO of your own presidential campaign, in my view. But what's so inconsistent about this to me is that Kellyanne Conway can come on television and use this, you know, more conciliatory language than we've heard out of the Trump campaign. Not that she is in any way reaching people, I think, who haven't already found some appeal in the Trump campaign, but she's certainly trying to get people more comfortable who have found him to go too far. But then like Bannon and Breitbart, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, here's what I told my husband. I just feel this is a point I made a million times, (laughs) but I feel justified in my Dave the movie analogy because it just shows, I think, so many people support Donald Trump because they they want this day fantasy of somebody's going to get there and clean it all up. And what no one wants to acknowledge is that um, being president and including running for president is a very specific skill set that you learn over time. You know, the stuff he's doing is sort of like what we what I learned when I was in Emerge for somebody running for like city commission, like. The people at your rallies or the people at your events are not votes. It doesn't mean anything. Like, he preaches on that all the time. Or, like, get a plan. Stick to it. Get get your kitchen cabinet. Get the people you trust. Make your plan and stick to it, you know. But that he does – he's breaking, like, every – like, remember Local Elections 101, our awesome uh, sponsor who has the, like, little online classes? I mean, it's like he hasn't taken the most basic level of education for how to run a campaign, yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, it's just been it's been really strange to watch. And I understand the appeal in we're going to do this differently. But I think you've got to do it differently really, really well. And that's just not happening. Oh, yeah. Not happening. <laughs> not, not happening. Not 
Yeah, I think that it just goes to show that this... I think Fox had a really good thing that was like, this shows he's a media celebrity, not a politician. Because that's how he's acting like this. This should have been a really strong week for the Republican nominee. When you think about the fact that Aetna pulled out of the exchanges Mm -hmm. and the Iran deal we're talking about you know, leverage versus ransom. And you've got Russia's very aggressive posture in the Middle East. There is a lot to talk about in terms of shifting directions in the country if you're the Republican nominee. And we heard none of that. We, I, When I turned on the news this week, I heard about two things. The Trump campaign reorganization and this ridiculous nonsense about who visited Louisiana and who didn't this week and oh, that was I, from I all know sides. because this was all it's so important to you i wanted to alert you that christy alley has weighed in on the controversy and she is challenging barack obama's response to the louisiana flooding i knew that that would be of utmost importance to you it was on here's, my face it was on the uh, side of my facebook feed <laughs> here's what's important to say about louisiana yeah. this is the worst natural disaster we've had in the united states since hurricane sandy right Thirteen people are dead. All kinds of people are displaced from their homes. This is going to be a $30 million cleanup effort. Who appears there in person and who doesn't just seems to me to not be the story. This is, again, we're just not doing justice to ourselves as Americans. When we get into these partisan squabbles about scheduling and media attention and who donates what and who's where when, And also, I want to say the president of the United States is entitled to take a vacation. I want the president of the United States to take a vacation. I want everybody to take a vacation. We're all so much better off when we take vacations. But the president is entitled to take a vacation, too, even when something horrible happens. And I don't think that President Obama rolling into Louisiana would have made a huge difference this week. It might have made a negative difference. That said, I don't think it was wrong for Donald Trump to be there. Like, can we just stop? I mean, there is no subject that to me more sharply demonstrates how polarized we are over nothing. So what I'm hearing from you is you do not care what Christy Alley says about this. I do not care. Okay, I'm I sorry. To, I really... I really liked her on Cheers. I think I have no, you know, beef with her, but I'm not interested in her thoughts on who came to Louisiana. So uh, we wanted to talk for a second about Syria and the image of the child that was so widely circulated this week. So for anybody who didn't see, there was a sort of viral image of a little boy sitting. He was five years old which is very difficult for me because I have a five-year-old little boy sitting um, after a bombing in Aleppo. And the saddest part, I think, is that he's just sitting there. He's not crying. He is sort of dazed. His Half of his face is covered in blood. Um, dust covers the other half of his face. And he's just sitting there with his little hands in his lap. And he is just totally stunned. Omron was his name. Is his name. This is the first time I've ever lied to my child about something on television. Mm. Jane was with me. My daughter Jane is five. This comes on the news. It's the first time I've seen it. I was shocked. And she looked at the television and said, what is that, Mommy? And I said, Jane, I 
don't know. And I will explain anything to her about the news. She saw me prepping for today's podcast and we had a talk about welfare. You know, I'll talk to Jane about anything, but I was just so um, shaken by the image and then looking at my precious daughter in front of me. Uh, she said, Mommy, maybe that's a statue. And I said, maybe it is, Jane. I mean, I just it's I've never lied to her like that. And I just couldn't get it together when I saw this image. Well, I was watching a video of they were discussing this image and they were comparing it to the the song is the image of the baby on the beach um, that came out several months mm-hmm. ago. And the baby was Felix's age, and this little boy is Amos's age. And it's just, it's really hard. And you simultaneously feel so emotionally invested and so completely helpless at the same time. I don't, I just don't know what to say about Syria anymore. I was talking with someone I work with who has really become a good friend and she has Syrian ancestry and was telling me about how she's just lived her life feeling like she doesn't have a country. And I, I just don't know what the answer is, but I do know that, that I'm personally coming up on a point where I don't know what the answer is, isn't going to do it anymore. You know, like this is wrong. It's just if we value human dignity at all, this is just wrong. Well, and I remember at early in the conflict hearing a report from Aleppo that NPR wrote, and it was sort of like they went and Aleppo carries itself various sort of like, you know, they're a, a trading hub from my understanding. And so it's a lot of merchants who are like, sort of feel like, you know, we exist, the, mar- the the market keeps going no matter what, and they were very sort of defiant and sort of like, you know, it seems really bad, but life goes on here. And it was a really interesting report from Aleppo in particular and sort of the distinctive, um, like I said, character of that city. And so, it, I don't know, I, it's, it just connected me to Aleppo a lot since then. And so when that came up and I realized that's where the bombing was and where that little boy was from... And it just reminds you, like, it's simultaneously a reminder of how horrible it is and a reminder that people are still trying to go about their daily lives in the midst of this terrible, terrible, terrible war. And there are no rules to this. Mm -hmm. There are no rules. There's nothing sacred. We aren't protecting anyone. It's just awful. And for what? You know, you never hear anything out of Syria that helps you understand what the Assad regime's objective really is. Mm -hmm. What what is this for? Yeah. So before we move on to welfare reform in the suit, we're going to compliment the other side. Y'all are doing such a good job because it's like we said, we sometimes we're struggling like, to find somebody every week. But you guys are sending them in. It's great. So Kindness First, which is uh, one of our Twitter followers at ATXTLB, said, I want to praise Governor Abbott. He designated September 15th as Power Up Your Library Day. Excellent cause. <laughs> so congratulations, Governor Abbott. And I think that um, Governor Abbott is a pretty uh, difficult figure for a lot of our <laughs> for a lot of Texans. listeners. Yeah. So I appreciate that very much. Well, Andrew Vandiver helped me out. He tweets at a Vandiver three and sent me an article complimenting Tim Kaine for his lifelong service in opposition to the death penalty. And uh, Tim Kaine not only has always advocated 
against the death penalty from a policy perspective, but he is also voluntarily given hours and hours and hours as a lawyer representing people in death penalty cases, which is something I did not know. And I I also did not know that this comes from his faith. Tim Keene is Catholic and Andrew um, is is also Catholic and works in in an advocacy role on issues like this. So uh, I thought this was really a great one and appreciate all of the effort that Tim Keene has put into that service. Keep them coming, you guys. They're great. Keep them coming. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P. 
com slash pansy. There was a great piece on Vox from Dylan Matthews entitled, If the goal was to get rid of poverty, we failed. The legacy of the 1996 welfare reform. So many of you tweeted and shared. Um, also, there was a series, a podcast called The Uncertain Hour, and they did a six-part series on welfare reform that I just listened to um, this weekend, which was excellent. So there's lots out there on welfare reform. I did a pantsuit primer on welfare reform, and just to sort of, in case you didn't hear the primer, sum it up quickly, um, welfare was begun in the sort of 1940s as an extension of state state programs called Widow's Pensions, that the purpose of which was to keep women at home and out of the workforce with their children. Unwed mothers were excluded. Divorced mothers were excluded. Black mothers were excluded. Um, in the 60s, the racial discrimination um, was decreased. And in the 70s, there was a lot of welfare rights reforms, including a Supreme Court case that said you sort of couldn't be excluded from the roles based on whatever they were making up that day. And it was an entitlement. And if you met the requirements, you got the benefit. And as a result of these two changes, the welfare rules exploded. It was like 2 million from 1945 to 12 million by 1975 people on the welfare rolls. This led to a lot of backlash, race-driven in particular, because the idea that black women should stay home with their children bumped up against a lot of really terrible stereotypes and economic realities that black women had always worked. And there was economies that sort of depended on their labor. So, we, in 1996, had the welfare reform, which took it from um, a matching grant from the federal government to block grants to the states, and which, as long as the money they were spending went for um, certain purposes, including decreasing unwed births, um, increasing four-person families, assistance to the poor, the states could spend it on whatever they want. There was a real push for work first programs in which people's benefits were tied directly to their participation in job training or job search. As a result, um, a lot of people dropped off the welfare reform rolls. And then um, with the Great Recession, the numbers were not, did not stay as strong. People were off the welfare reform, but there were people living in extreme poverty, usually it's defined as about $2 a day. And so at this 20-year anniversary mark, there's been a lot of really in-depth examination of what welfare reform achieved and what it did not. That's a, that's a lightning round <laughs> summary of welfare. And there's just so much to pull apart here. I guess my sort of opening volley on this, Sarah, is that I do not think we need welfare reform. I think we need to get out a blank sheet of paper yeah. and t- And talk about what are we trying to achieve and what does that mean in the new economy? I feel like both sides, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, have sort of a weird nostalgia about welfare. Both parties are really entrenched in certain historic aspects of the programs, right? And to me, nothing that we're doing today fits the new economy, the new model of what families look like. I just think we need to start over. Well, one of the most interesting things I learned when doing the primer is that the welfare rights movement 
some of the people leading its motivation was was purposefully basically to balloon welfare to such a point that it blew up the system and that we ended up with a universal basic income which if we're going to start from scratch is probably something that I I think is the right way to go because you know what I thought a lot about when I was ta- thinking like looking through all these podcasts and reading all these articles was you know with regards to the purpose of welfare reform, I honestly think the purpose of welfare reform is to get people off welfare. And that worked. We got people off welfare. I don't think the purpose of welfare reform was to address poverty. I really don't think that anybody thought that's what was going to happen. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being particularly cynical, but it didn't do that. And with regards to, you know, moving forward, I think the tough question with regards to any sort of cash benefit system regarding, especially surrounding the idea that we don't punish poor children for their parents being poor. So we really want to help poor families in particular. Well, that bumps directly up against the idea that, you know, if we want to help families by providing them with work, it's going, it's going to cost more. It is more cost effective to the taxpayers to pay people to stay home and take care of their children. Because once you pull somebody out and you say you have to get a job, well, then there's all these other things. And if you're going to really pull people out of poverty that way, then there needs to be subsidized daycare. There needs to be subsidized health care. There probably most likely needs to be subsidized work in many communities. And that costs more. So if the idea is that what's most important, I mean, I just think we're com- we're bumping up against all these conflicting um goals that we don't want to spend a lot of money that we want people to work but we don't want to punish poor children but we don't want to spend a lot of money like it's just I think we have we're at cross purposes and we really haven't decided as a society what matters I think that starting over with a fresh sheet of paper sounds great but I think that's highly unlikely in our current hyper-partisan environment. I think the first step for me after kind of looking at this in depth is addressing the block grants that the states get and that it's basically a slush fund and nobody wants that. I think that's something we can all agree on. Well, I don't think that we want the states to have slush funds, but I also think a significant problem with all of our entitlement programs is the amount of direction over individuals involved. It's it's sort of makes me think the analogy that keeps coming to mind for me, which is not a great one, but I think about, you know, if you pay for your own wedding, you kind of get to do what you want. If your parents are paying for it, there are all these rules about it, right? Mm. And that seems to be what's happening in these programs. You can have the money, but, and all of those buts make us make it seem like the purpose of our entitlement programs is to keep people in them mm-hmm. instead of lifting people out of them. And I get that sort of the caricature of the liberal perspective is, well, we want everybody to be in entitlement programs and we want them to rely on Democrats to keep those programs. And so they're going to keep being reliable Democratic voters. And the caricature of the conservative perspective is, I hate all the people on entitlement programs. I think they're lazy and I want them to get a job. And neither of those perspectives, I think, is as real as we just kind of lazily accept them to be. 
I, I don't think Democrats want people to live in poverty for years and years and generations and generations. I also don't think that Republicans don't care about providing a social safety net for people. And I don't think that this idea that we want people to work is born of resentment or a thought that people are lazy. I mean, for me, work has a dignity to it, right? And I feel like if we want people to move out of entitlements, not just because we don't want to spend the money, but because we care about them as people, work is an important component of that. So that's where I would start. What do we believe about work and why? Because to your point, it is more expensive for people to work. But I see that as an expense that I'm all in for. Let's help people work. Now, I think we need to reexamine what work means in the American economy. And one thing that I feel pretty strongly about that I know is kind of out of left field, I think we need to, for everyone's benefit, reexamine the 40-hour work week. I don't think it works for anyone. I think it is driving a lot of the resentment from people who are working those 40 hours every week and who feel like they are dying under that pressure. And I think it makes the dilemma of a person in an entitlement program who's considering going back to work or remaining in the programs almost impossible. You know, it's I think the 40 hour work week really bears no relation to the new economy and is kind of strangling people who are assessing their options. Well, I think that with regards to work, I struggle with that because I don't, you know, listening to a lot of the stories with regards to welfare reform, not all work is equal. And I think that's sort of where we get lost in this discussion. And... I think there are very few people who don't feel some kind of shame taking what we've decided as society is a handout. And so, you know, overall, I think a majority of people want to work. But, you know, when you say you want to work, well, people want to feel, and this really sort of almost goes to your 40-hour work week, people want to feel like they're contributing a fair amount and getting a fair amount of return. And what so often happens with regards to especially extreme poverty is it's not a fair exchange. You're spending so much to get there or you have no way to get there or you're spending hours and hours and, you know, for such a tiny amount of money, there's a lot of sort of calculus involved. Before welfare reform was passed, there was sort of no, there was a 100% um, payout rate so that every dollar you made was a dollar you didn't get in benefits, which didn't motivate people to work. But again, that's because that wasn't the purpose of the program. <laughs> the purpose of the program was to have women stay home with their children. And so, you know, I think what happened was we invented this program for a purpose. We decided we didn't like the purpose anymore. Instead of saying, what do we want? We, and I guess we sort of did say what we wanted. We decided we wanted people to work. But we didn't say we want people to work for a fair wage. We didn't want to say we wanted people to work and feel like they're, they're, the assumption was like just any work at all will pull them up the rungs of the economic ladder. And that just hasn't been the case. And all work isn't created equal. And, you know, some work leaves you worse off than you were before. And we have to acknowledge that. And I think that, you know, the, the problem with sort of attaching 
and sort of the the problem I see, not that it's wrong that there's dignity in work, but that attaching this, you know, dignity to the idea, the concept loosely leaves out those situations where engaging in, you know, there is work that I think robs you of your, robs you of your dignity and not just illegal work. You know, I think that people want to provide for their families. Like one of the most disturbing statistics I heard listening to all this was in the uncertain hour, they talked about like how our plasma donation rate has like skyrocketed since welfare reform, like 75% or something. Like we're like a plasma farm compared to the rest of the world. And to me, like that means we are failing people in a big, big way. If it's, we, we are, there's too much hassle to get help from your fellow citizens. So instead you go sell your blood plasma. (laughs) Like I just don't like something's gone terribly awry. And I think the focus on work, 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 work first is all that matters to somebody get a job is, you know, it's problematic. One of the things that really burns me when I hear people talk about this issue of work, though, is saying that people who are in entitlement reforms and vote Republican are voting against their self-interest. Because I do think a lot of the reason that you see a lot of people voting Republican in impoverished areas, it's not because they're ignorant. It's because they know that this doesn't work either. They don't want to be on these entitlement programs. They want a healthy economy that affords them opportunities that they don't see today. And so I, I think that if I, I hear your concerns that not all work is created equal, that's true. Part of the reason that's true is because we've built some of that into this system, though, you know. So I think we've got to kind of clean the slate on our ideas about work. I agree with I agree with some of what you said, not all of it. But but to to get back to a question that you were asking, we don't like the original purpose anymore. How would you as a Democrat, Sarah, articulate the purpose of a federal welfare program today? Here in 2016 and going forward. What are we trying to accomplish? Well, I would definitely strike the, I want to eliminate the purposes about unwed mothers and building stronger marriages so that, you know, you don't have Oklahoma spending more money on like middle-class marriage classes than they are on cash assistance. To me, it's to help people pull themselves out of poverty. And if that means that you take cash assistance and go get a degree, you know, one of the most disturbing things I heard was a consultant from the Heritage Foundation basically make the case that we emphasize job first instead of education training because people in poverty were terrible at school to begin with. So why would we pour more money in sending them back to school? <laughs> Which I just thought, like, there is so much wrong with that. I don't even know where to begin. And so I've also said across the table at a recent race unity class where a woman said, like, I used welfare to go back to school and it helped me pull my family out of poverty. So to me, cash assistance is for people living in extreme poverty. And it's not, you know, I don't know the answer. I don't know if it there's no strings attached. I don't, that's not what I mean. But we need to really, you know, go back to the drawing board on how we determine who isn't like the requirements for the entitlement. And once I am sort of with the welfare rights reformers on this, like Mm -hmm. there are requirements and then you get your cash benefit and that's it. How much money you make, how many kids you have, whatever it is. And that it's not sort of where we were before though, that it's this phase out that the second you start to pull yourself out, we cut you off. I mean, I think it just needs to be a more fluid 
process and a more individualized process, which, you know, I know I can hear the tweets. That's just more bureaucracy coming. But, you know, I just, I think that there is a part of me fundamentally that believes that there is a role for the government in helping people rise out of poverty because I don't know, you know, and maybe we shouldn't think about it the government. Maybe we should think about it as we are helping our fellow citizens rise out of poverty because that helps all of us. I just, because I don't know what the other solution is, you know, putting, you know, in my community, you know, our, our local government does a lot, but, you know, there is a limit to what nonprofits and churches and these sort of community organizations can do. It's sort of, you know, it feels like a band-aid to me when we're not addressing the fact that people need help bridging this gap because they're not making enough money. And that's where there is a role for taxpayer assistance, I guess. So I, when I think about welfare generally, I I see two purposes. One is to preserve as an ideal for our country the fact that there is a certain standard of living that we expect every American to have. You know, we just we do not allow people to fall below a certain standard of living. It it really upsets me that here in America in 2016 we haven't solved homelessness. We have the brain power and the resources to do that and we should do it. So there's a there is an element in my mind that's just this is one of our values as a country. The second thing is to help people improve their circumstances during difficult times. And to that end, I don't know the proper balance of power between the federal government and state and local governments. Um, I, I don't like the slush fund proposition. I also think that there is more humanity at a closer level and less resentment and and some ability to do a better job. Let's take the minimum wage just as an example, because you raised a living wage as one of the challenges to welfare. You know, it. I don't understand nationalizing the minimum wage conversation because what constitutes a living wage where I live in Kentucky versus you where you live in Kentucky is very different, right? So I think that there are some aspects of all of the complexities that influence poverty that are purely local and need to be managed more that way. And I wonder if people were confronted more with sort of how this impacts their communities, if we might have more generosity of spirit about it instead of all of the resentment. Because that's kind of where we are right now, right? There are people who really passionately believe in these programs and sort of feel good about the fact that they do. And then there are people who are super angry about them, you know, and and we have to find a place where we're connected to the purpose of what's going on instead of just sort of talking around that purpose. Yeah. And I think, I just think what's so hard is for some reason, there's just this disconnect with actual cash assistance. You know, if I was to say as a Democrat, okay, I support subsidized childcare, subsidized healthcare, food stamps, Everybody's like, mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. And the second I say, and I want to give them a check to cover their bills, I want to give them cash assistance. I think that's where people sort of draw back. There was a really great podcast I listened to a long time ago. I can't remember if it was Freakonomics. I think it was. 
And it was basically, you know, this nonprofit in Africa who was like, we don't want to give them a stinking sheep. We're just going to give them a check. We just, why do we think that we know how to spend people's, like, we know what will pull somebody out of poverty better than they do. And because there's a sort of an inherent judgment of, well, you won't spend it the right way. And, you know, they, they, they go through this whole story and all the psychology of it. And, you know, I think that there's something we kind of, I think we have to decide how we feel as a society with regards to just, not just the purpose of handing this money out, but if we're comfortable handing the money out at all, or if it needs to be, maybe we're comfortable handing out money when it is just universal basic income and just everybody gets it. And maybe that's a solution. I don't know, but I do feel like there's this hesitation when there's a check involved. Well, if you're sitting down, I'll tell you that I I prefer a check to the in-kind benefits because we have created so much bureaucracy, well-intended. Look, I don't think anybody has impure motives in these discussions. And if someone does, I'm just going to look past that as as always one bad apple or something. Like, I, I think people have really good intentions, but we have created layers upon layers upon layers of good intentioned um, administrative minutiae for people and I, I think it's nuts and I would rather give people checks. I think we should be honest about what we're doing. If what we are saying is we as a society want people to have a certain standard of living and if they don't, we're going to help them, then let's just do that honestly and in a straightforward way that requires as little judgment and as little micromanagement as possible. And let's hold people responsible for that. You know, I don't know if that means repayment programs probably not you know i i don't i don't know what the right answer is on accountability and maybe there is none maybe this is just one where we say look we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do and if it doesn't always work out fine but i would rather give people checks than try to build solutions for every complexity that enters mm-hmm. the life of a person in poverty yeah i mean i'm really i feel like we need to have some maybe a primer on universal basic income because when it popped up i just thought like okay this is so interesting and apparently they passed it through the house i think it died in the senate or it was the other way around nixon did which was sort of surprising and maybe that i mean maybe that's really what we need to have a conversation about because you know the like you said the complexity of subsidies is like a whole galaxy of problems but for me, you know, what I've learned more than anything is I don't think the goal of welfare reform should just be to get people off welfare. And I think there are people really suffering. And I think Dylan, the Dylan Matthews piece talks about people have to report their income to get food stamps. And so many people report zero income, but they're not getting any cash assistance. And that to me is not okay. And I'm not, you know, I the. I guess I just fundamentally sort of subscribe to a rising tide, you know, raises all boats. And I just, I want to help people that are in this sort of extreme poverty. And I don't think we're doing that right now. And this didn't work. And so we need to keep trying until we find something that does. No, I think we're entrapping people in poverty. I think we have, I think we are repeating with every subsequent generation the same mistakes. And I think that those are well-intentioned mistakes, but it's time to kind of recognize that we've created something that we don't really want. Now, that's not to say, I mean, there are people who, 
who use these programs for a brief period of time and come away and do something wonderful with their lives. You know, we've heard from a listener who has that story and it's amazing. And it's, but, but it's hard. It's so hard to do that. And that should be, that should be the normal result, right? If our programs are properly designed, Something that Arthur Brooks says about this, and I, Arthur Brooks is the president of the American Enterprise Institute and a really respected conservative thinker. In the conservative heart, he talks about how poverty is not complicated, it's complex. Mm. And our social programs have treated poverty as though it's complicated. And, and that delineation, he says, is that things that are complicated are difficult but solvable, once you figure out how to make a jet engine, you can repeat that over and over and you're always going to have a jet engine at the end. Complex means there are so many factors, some within your control and some out of your control that even when you get better or you make progress, you're not going to replicate your results over and over again. And his example is a football game, right? You could you could know all of the statistics about two teams going into a game. You could understand the weather and the conditions and you still can't predict the outcome every single time. So poverty is such a complex blend of topics and behaviors and circumstances that something that's designed to to really take a whole person and say, I've got a state-sponsored solution to everything going on in your situation, that just doesn't work. And I think about this so poignantly in Kentucky where drug use is such an issue, where depression is such an issue. You know, so many of the reasons that people find themselves in need of support from others is is kind of spiritual and mental and, and physical. We, we just can't we can't come up with a program for every issue that keeps someone in poverty. And so in my mind, it's better to to give people checks for some period of time. I don't know what all the parameters around that should be, but I, I have no problem with saying that as Americans, we're not going to let people fall below a certain standard of living. I do have a problem with having constructed a structure that exists to perpetuate itself and to keep people kind of tied up inside that structure well this is the only thing i'll push slightly back on that though i don't think this this is a this is a recreation of the same problem pre-welfare reform we had problems they are very different than what we had post-welfare reform pre-welfare reform we had huge roles of people on welfare and yes multi-generational people on welfare in which um, it didn't make sense to get a job because you would lose your benefits and there was, it, it was in a way a trap again, because the purpose was to keep people off out of work, but whatever. So that's the problem. But post-welfare reform is a different problem. We are kicking people out of the roles. We are making it incredibly difficult to get on welfare and to, to get that assistance and that you have people not trapped within the system, but trapped outside of it with no help, with no assistance at all, living in extreme poverty. Um, so I do think we have diff. I think we've overcorrected. I think we have created a system in which our fear is so strong that we're going to perpetuate, and we're going to have welfare queens, and we're going to have multi generation families on welfare. That we now have a situation in which, you know, less than twenty six percent of our federal Assistance to needy family funds goes to cash assistance. Less than 26%. Now, I will say, I looked up Kentucky, and ours is about 50% of our state 
block grant. Not to mention that these block, you know, before they were matching funds so they could adjust to the need. Now they're finite amounts of money that haven't changed since 1996. It's not even a worth the, the same amount of money. Not to mention that in a situation like the Great Recession, you have more people that need it and no increase in the funds. So I, I really think that welfare reform, the narrative needs to change. The narrative, the, the program changed. The problems changed, but the narrative didn't. The narrative stayed, we have people trapped within the system. But that's not really what's going on. What's going on is we're spending less and less and we're kicking people off and we're making it harder for people to get in the to get the assistance they need. And we had an increase, particularly in the Great Recession, in people that needed it. You know, it's I, I, I think that, and I include myself in this, I, I didn't understand the problem because I think that our narrative about the problem hasn't changed even though the problem has. But I think that our narrative not changing means that the problem can't fully change because there are still people with beliefs that if they work, they will lose these entitlements. There are still, do you know what I mean? Like this structure doesn't turn even in 20 years because it's become so entrenched. But I don't think that's true, Beth. That's, I don't think there are people out there that think if I work, I'll lose my entitlements. You have, it's a limit. The law limits you. You have to work or be on these job training or job pro, I mean- but you, you think there are to. you think there are people who do not worry about earning too much money to get to keep their entitlements. I think but there are people who worry about earning too much money. Are two money. different things. That's a different point. You know, I, I think it's a difference between wor- working and not working, and working and earning too much are two different things. But I don't think it's a different thing in terms of the problem that it generates, which is are people materially improving their circumstances or not? Because again, my interest in people working is not driven by the fact that I don't want people to be lazy. I don't have that perspective at all. My interest in people working is to improve their lives over the long term, right? To be at a point where they don't need this assistance anymore, not because I don't want to write the check, but because that's what I care about. It's for people to have the dignity of a life where they're providing for themselves and their families and they're they're truly living better off than they were before coming into the program. That's that's a different thing, too. Than- but the emphasis on that has created a situation in which people... I mean, literally have to drop out of college because they can't make their work training requirements. Right. right? And, and that's why I say, again, like I'm comfortable with just providing cash benefits. Like I, I don't because when we start saying we you know, we got a note from a listener about the the education requirements and how some of those get construed in ways that make no sense for people. Mm-hmm. Right. You end up mm-hmm. repeating education that you've already taken mm-hmm. or you do something that you have no intention. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. of following through on. Or there's like a lot of emphasis on these sort of like short-term licensing situations, which are costly and not really beneficial economically in the long run too. Yeah, I I think we've just got to start, stop micromanaging people through this. And look, I think the abuse of these programs is less widespread than we talk about, but I also know that it exists. I mean, my husband harps Mm -hmm. on a story, harps is not the right word because he doesn't say it endlessly in a way that's not helpful. It's a significant moment in his childhood that he recalls often that someone down the street from him um, received government checks and talked about that very openly. And while my husband, as a very young child, was mowing his yard, the family receiving this assistance hired someone to mow their yard. And whatever the circumstances were, that sunk in very clearly with my husband early on, right, that these people... Um, we're spending their money inappropriately, we're taking advantage of a system. And a lot of people have stories like that and have a memory of someone abusing the system. I- I'm okay with just accepting that sometimes things like that are going to happen um, when you give people cash benefits. I just think that's part of the cost of 
doing something generous, right? There's always the, there's always the possibility that something's going to go awry or that you don't know all the circumstances. Well, but- would you put any requirements on the cash benefits? Are you just talking about like a just not necessarily a universal basic income, but you have this many kids, your income, you report your income as this much and you get a check and that's the end of it? I would want to really study um, that issue. I don't know. I, I, the universal basic income has a lot of appeal to me, especially as you start to think about the new economy, because mm-hmm. I think about yeah, where we're going, fair. where we're going as an economy. There's a lot of almost return to bartering happening, right? You know, I, like we, we heard someone speak at podcast movement about how he gets a lot of merchandise for free, but advertises that for the makers of that merchandise on the podcast, right? There's this, and a lot of people I know, radio stations do this all the time. There's a lot of bartering going on. Nothing about our welfare system takes into account those kinds of opportunities, right? Um, When you think about the work week, when you think about just what professions are, what's happening with college, college has to get sorted out somewhere along the way, the cost of college and the benefits of college. So I I would want to really study what makes the most sense if we project out 20 years. But that's part of my problem with this whole conversation. I feel like we're all looking backward instead of looking forward. And what makes sense going forward in terms of keeping everyone at a standard of living that we can feel proud of as Americans I think that's something totally different. But I think the answer to all this, and, and this is a point that I that I just have to make, is not the continuance of increasing government programs to address every single issue. And I don't want to be um, frustrating to you, Sarah, but I heard, a, I heard a Hillary Clinton speech. I listened to it in its entirety while I was in the car one day. And it took some of the language that we heard in her convention speech, um, but then it like supercharged the progressive aspect of that speech. And it was a laundry list of of Hillary Clinton saying things like, I am going to help you get rid of your student debt. I am going to help you go to college. I am going to help you do X, Y, and Z. And you know how I'm going to pay for it? We're going to take the money from the wealthiest Americans. And I thought like, oh my goodness, I... I think this just perpetuates all of the problems that we have around the welfare state. It's so much government, so big and inefficient and slow. And the idea that we're going to like what solves this problem is having a better economy where more people have access to good paying jobs. And if we keep beating the drum of we're going to take, take, take from the wealthy and take, take, take from corporations, I'm not sure how we get to a healthier economy. And it's not that I'm trying to spout off like boring trickle-down economics or something, but I do think that part of that wave of what's happened with welfare tracks with what's happened with the economy. And the exposure of our issues with welfare now, as you said, are related to the 2008 recession. So, Well, I mean, I think, though, that people, when she says that stuff, what she is appealing to is not the idea that we need a better economy it's that we need a more fair economy it's that we need an economy in which the top one percent doesn't own 50 percent of the wealth and when she says those things that i mean it's the rig system populist which while i don't i understand it it's not it's not a fantasy. It's not made up. I mean, 
we have some of one of the you know we live in a time where there is a huge and growing gap between the very very rich and the poor and the middle class is shrinking and it's not it's not really sort of it's not made up to make people feel bad i mean that's just the reality and let me ask you this question if the standard of living increased for everyone because of a healthy economy how important is that gap if we have a bigger pie do we care as much about how it's divided? Yes. Th- that's why I think the point I do. about... Do you? I mean, if we mm-hmm. had a situation where no one lived below the poverty line. But still 1% owned 50% of the wealth? Yeah, I'd still care. Because I don't think it's a healthy democracy. Because I don't think it's a healthy system in which some people gain access to, you know, not even gain access, just automatically have access to other that, to things that other people are systematically excluded from. Like, you know, I just, yeah, I don't, I mean, even if that was, even if we didn't have this extreme poverty situation, you know, to me, the American promise and the American democracy is that the economic ladder, you can still climb it, you know, and I don't think we've ever achieved that, but I think we should still try. And when you feel like, you know, you can go three rungs and there's a football field difference that you would have to learn to fly to get to the top of the ladder, then that fundamental promise is lacking. And that's what she's talking about. And that's what she's appealing to is the feeling that these systems that we were all told would get you up the ladder um, are broken. And that I'm not saying that that's, you know, some of that doesn't have to do with a new and changing economy. I absolutely believe it does. But the answer in that in that that is not the entirety of the problem, it's also not the entirety of the solution. You know, that the global economy is not the only reason that we have this growing gap between the rich and the poor. And it's not going to be the only solution either. Well, and I don't I'm not saying that it's the only solution, but I'm saying it's a very important part of it. And looking at the welfare system in isolation doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. And I don't care so much about that gap if we are properly taking care of people and helping them improve their circumstances all along the way. The American promise to me is not that we are all able to get to the top of the ladder. It's that we are all able to keep climbing and that we are all treated with a dignity and a compassion. If we get to a point in our country where we've grown the economy, everyone can have a good paying job, people can retire, people can obtain the level of education that they want to obtain, and we're all working hard and each generation is living better than the one before it, I don't care if some guy who, you know, inherited money three generations ago can buy an island. I just don't. It doesn't matter to me as long well, as we're doing what we need to do for everyone else. Exist. I mean, I think that what an economist would say is that it's very difficult to get to that spot. It's very difficult to get to a spot in which everyone ha- can fulfill their promise and rise up the ladder when you have that huge gap. It affects the economy. It affects the amount of jobs. It affects, you know, when CEO, it affects how a company runs when a CEO 
like today, makes 25 times what the average worker does. I mean, that affects the company's bottom line. Yes, it does. And it also affects our economic health and the opportunity afforded to the people living in poverty when we demonize American business and enterprise and make it impossible for the economy to keep growing because we're so focused on the distribution of wealth within it. So this is like everything else we talk about. You need both perspectives. And ultimately, I think the right answer is somewhere in the middle. I mean, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that is, you know, it's, I don't think it's an, I'll say this to, to wrap us our welfare discussion up. I don't think that it's an accident that our discussion led there. I think that some of our issues with welfare and welfare reform and entitlement programs is the fundamental perceived or true fairness of our economic systems in place. And so, you know, I think that this is all, we have to get to that underlying stuff if we're ever going to figure out things like welfare. All right. So in the heels today, we are going to talk about what I like to term the Pinterest mom issue, Sarah. So I posted on Instagram a picture of my daughter Jane's first day of kindergarten. And Jane was holding a sign that I hastily wrote on construction paper in our car on the way to school uh, that had like the date and her teacher's name. And um, a couple of our listeners, uh, one of whom I know in real life, commented that it was kind of refreshing to see just like a handwritten sign instead of like a wooden structure built to commemorate day one of school. And I thought that was so funny and just so true because I know exactly what they're talking about. Like going through my Facebook feed, people are amazingly creative and um, committed to the first day of school picture. And so I commented, you know, I'm just not a Pinterest mom. And uh, Dawn and Debbie kind of said, like, hooray, that makes me feel better about not being one either. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about how here's here's what's given me some peace of mind. Like, I actually love to do crafts. And I love to cook and I love to do all the things that Pinterest is about. What I have realized as a mom is that it's awesome to do those things for your kids. Jane might care about 30 to 40 percent of what I produce when I go down that path. And that's great. And that's totally fine. But I'm not going to make myself feel guilty when I don't do those things because so much of it is for me, not for her. And again, that's not to take away from anyone who does it, but I've just realized with Jane in particular, like, she doesn't care about this stuff. And she will be as thrilled with the picture that I took of her as she would be if I had, you know, constructed a miniature replica of her school out of popsicle sticks or something. Well, I would like to encourage people to see Pinterest in a new light. Pinterest, for me, is not a way to raise expectations, but a way to more easily meet my own. And what I mean is like, people think like you don't have to go to Pinterest to, you know, find the perfect way to do it. You can go to Pinterest to find the easy way to do it. And that's what I use Pinterest for. I'm like, okay, let's hack this situation. So, you know, I have a file on my computer. 
it's printed on a plain piece, white piece of paper. I do exceptionally enjoy the font. But it's like I changed the teacher's name. I changed the year. I do it because I look back at my own pictures from like third, fourth, fifth grade. And I cannot tell the difference. And let's just be honest, neither can my mom. So I do it just so I know which year is which. But, you know, like it doesn't have to be. I think people just like see something on Pinterest and they think it has to be that Pinterest level. Like it doesn't have to be a hand chalked board that takes you a half an hour. You can print it in five minutes. And like I just think like. Sometimes people get turned off and they reject like all sort of good ideas or traditions that come from Pinterest when it doesn't have to be like that. But if you, if a part of that appeals to you, like make it your own. Yeah. I love the idea of holding a sign because I have the same thing with my pictures from Like it would be cute if you let her draw. Like how, ooh, I just thought of this. Maybe I'll do this with Felix. Like let them, I mean, you couldn't really do it in pre-K because they can't write, but like sort of, you know how you, on your 21st birthday, you sign it for every shot to see how your handwriting degrades? No, Sarah, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You could do it reverse and like have them write it every year to see how their handwriting gets better. That'd be a fun way to do it. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think that what I just feel is like, let us all release the guilt that anything comes, (laughs) anything brings in our lives, but particularly around mom stuff. And also it doesn't have to be either or, right? Like, you can be really super crafty about birthday parties, maybe, but not about Valentine's Day or something. I just think there's all this pressure that, like, if I'm going to do these things, I have to do them 100% of the time and with 100% of my effort. And I just don't think that's life. Yeah, I mean, I really, it's it's all how you see Pinterest. Pinterest has made my life much easier because there are certain aspects of that part of, like, craftiness or parties that I really enjoy. And whereas used to, you know, when Griffin was first born, I spent hours hunting down his ideas for his birthday party. Now with Pinterest, I mean, I can throw something together that's, like, mildly impressive in, like, 20 minutes because that's, it's just such a, you know, database like such an amazing search engine for stuff like that or like you're like I have two ingredients what could I put these in or I want this certain kind of pie or I want a fun like you know I need a potty chart I want a printable free potty chart I mean you're talking whereas you used to like it would take me a while to get on internet and find what I wanted and you know plug in printable potty chart on Pinterest two minutes later you got exactly what you're looking for like it's just such a great search engine as far as just the plethora of data on blogs in particular. Like, it's such an easy way to search that and find it really quickly. I mean, I'm a big fan, but that's just me. I like it. I just refuse to let it be my overlord. That's the whole thing. Just use it as a tool, y'all. That's all it is, is a tool. Agreed. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you so much for your iTunes reviews. Please keep those coming. It helps more people find Pantsuit Politics. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back with you on Friday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. (laughs) 